understanding the doctrine of Christ and strengthening our testimony is a labor that will bring real joy and satisfaction. We need to consistently study the words of Christ as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Studying is then another essential key to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer and scripture study go hand in hand. They work together for our benefit. This is the process that the Lord has established. To feast means more than to taste. To feast means to savor. We savor the scriptures by studying them in a spirit of delightful discovery and faithful obedience. When we feast upon the words of Christ, they are embedded in the fleshy tables of the heart. You know what is funny is that all the stuff I've been hearing this, like this year, as we've been talking about this, about how Moses, like the story that we hear about Moses and about Ramses, about all these people, like there's questions about whether it actually happens this way. And it's funny because they're like, did anyone named Moses actually exist? Well, the name Moses means something and. There's all these different possible people that it could have been. And when who was the Pharaoh at the time? Well, actually, the Pharaoh would have been this person, not Ramses. But Ramses means this, and it could mean an application to this type of person. You know, and it's like, part of me is like, is this stuff that we're learning because we know more now than we've ever known before? And so we're finally starting to get an idea of what actually happened? Or is this like a way to undermine things and say well did that even happen is this even real you know yeah i i i don't struggle but i can't think of a different word i struggle with the old testament how it is written like yeah it definitely feels like there should be more information um but it also is like this is thousands of years old and then i look at things like well moses spoke wrote about himself not as a person would write about themselves well and that's the other thing is that we talk about these being the five books of moses and there's no way he wrote this there's no way that he as an individual wrote all of this that this probably came later talking about him written by people you know talking about it and they just call the books of moses because i don't know he was one of the main characters in it or something i don't know it's like it's like one of those things where, <laughs> um, yeah, you, you read some of these stories and you're like, this seems so out of left field. I'm sure there's more information here that we just don't have. And then you kind of hear about, well, historically, in in this culture may not have been that way. You should look at this more as kind of an allegory, right? Yeah. But a lot of these things are like that. And it's like, okay, I, I wasn't taught that growing up. You know, I was taught that this flood happened and it covered the whole earth and then that was it. And now it's like, well, maybe it didn't cover the whole earth. And could it be feasible that it just covered everything that they knew that they could see and that that, that was sufficient? And it's like, well, sure. So for me, I don't like us to force answers. That always turns me off in scriptures yeah. where we force answers 
we answer something by a very specific scripture, but then when we find another specific scripture that contradicts that, then we want to talk about, well, you have to ponder or you have to think like, you know, and it, sometimes it feels like it's interpretations. But for me, how I interpret the scriptures, I have to consider them as a whole. Because as I see an individual, we know prophets aren't perfect. We know that Christ was the only perfect or is the only perfect being to have lived. And he didn't write his own scriptures. Right. Like he didn't come and edit everybody's. He came and taught and those who he taught wrote about what they learned, you know. So for me, like to understanding the Old Testament, you know, like first and second Nephi does quite a bit for me. You know, when when Nephi talks about Isaiah or he talks about the children of Israel to his brothers, you know, and you get little glimpses that, okay, so we don't know all the details about the story, but we know what these individuals learned and took away from it, you know, and part of it, we learned that the children of Israel were very stiff-necked people, and that is at first you think, oh, well, a stiff neck means you can't turn. And it could be that. It could also be they were stubborn. They were also they also seem to lack uh, confidence. Yeah. Because you know? once the Lord takes them out of Egypt, he says, well, let's not go to Palestine or the Philistines because I don't want them to see war because they might fear and turn away and decide they're better off in Egypt. And so there was like they didn't know how to war. They they were they haven't worn their slaves, but then Pharaoh's initial fear is that there's so many of these Hebrews that if we have an enemy, they could take sides with our enemy and right. turn against us. And so, and and you don't I don't know how they used their slaves if they used them to help supplement the war efforts or they just stayed at home and provided food and apparently they did a lot of brick and mortar and and Pharaoh took that away from them and like you know there there's just one of the things that I was thinking about the other day was I thought about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great's conquests are pretty well documented, but he brought his own scribes and kind of wrote his own history. So it's kind of hard to tell how much of that was aggrandized or exaggerated and how much. And also, it's always intriguing to see someone's point of view from the other perspective, you know. And so there are cultures, one of them that I learned about was in Korea, that they kept these three different records of their history from thousands of years ago, and they kept them in three geographical locations. But the emperor could never read the history. It was against the law because they didn't want him to change it, you know. And so one of the thoughts I've had is this this event for the Egyptians would be very traumatic. It would be very huge. And that's one of the counter arguments that people say, well, then there would be mention of Israel in the hieroglyphics. There would be something, something. But then we also see examples where we are discovering new rulers and even female rulers that were pharaohs for a time. And the reason why is they were they were deleted from the records. Certain certain pharaohs, when they came into power, they were the law. Whatever they say was it. And whatever was written was what happened. And, and it could contradict the actual facts. And so if you see a, a pharaoh who had gone through all of these problems with the Hebrews and his own plan to just make things worse for them backfired, it actually created Moses, created the, the event by which he left and came back to rescue his people. 
it could be very easy if he survived or his descendants to be like, we're rewriting this because this was a terrible. They're well, also it's incredibly they, embarrassing if you are supposedly God incarnate, right? Which the Pharaoh was in the minds of the Egyptians. That's that was his role. He was all the gods represented in, a, in the form of a man. And then to be basically dragged through the mud over and over and over again by Moses, like that's embarrassing. You don't want to have a long term record of that and make it look like you were the worst Pharaoh ever, you know, and I don't know. It's funny because, you know, we'll probably get into this in a little bit, but when we talk about all the different plagues that came, it's it's interesting how each one of those plagues was meant to target a specific Egyptian god and basically undermine that god to show that the god of the Jews was more powerful than any of the Egyptian gods and how meticulously it went like through the major gods one by one. And making them look like, yeah, if if your God was more powerful than mine, this wouldn't have happened. But the God of the Jews is stronger, you know. And, of course, the Pharaoh is not going to want to be like, yeah, I remember that time when we lost our entire labor force and we were basically humiliated by one guy. Yeah, I want I want that in hieroglyphics up in my tomb. No, I wouldn't want that. Yeah. I, one, one important Joseph Smith translation change, the as we get into the plagues that we should remember, is in the scripture it says after almost every plague, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Joseph Smith translation always changes it to and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yeah. Because if we take it at face value, it makes it sound like God was just playing both sides here. Yeah. I'm going to do this. Moses, do this. So he lets you go, and then I will make sure he doesn't let you go. He he gets even more upset and hardens his heart. And so those are some of the small um, changes in modern revelation that have given us more clarity into these really Old Testament stories, right? Um, which is also consistent with agency, which we know God doesn't purposely make things difficult or contradicts himself, like hey, Moses, I need you to get the people out. And then at the same time, I'm going to go make it harder for that to occur, you know? So the whole thing basically starts with in in Exodus 1, that the Pharaoh, the biggest part about it is that the Pharaoh orders all of the male Jews to be killed. And that the midwives say they're not going to do it. Um, And it's interesting because this is kind of how we get uh, Moses being born, and then they, in order to escape this execution mandate from the Pharaoh, he's kind of floated down river, you know, <laughs> and finds himself in a, an Egyptian household and grows up Egyptian, which, you know, is always kind of like in the in the grand picture of things. Now that we have kind of the whole picture of what the story is about um, with the, with the Bible, it seems to me that in order for him to best ad- come back and talk to the pharaoh and best come back and address the egyptians it's beneficial that he actually was one of them at one point to me that's important because it shows that not only do i know my my opponent right but i was one of you and so the lord got someone who could understand both of these groups very intimately and when he committed that crime right when he killed a a guard for for being overly zealous um 
later in his life and he had to run away. Where did he run? He went to his old people and lived basically as a nomad for like a really long time. And it was then that he finally started to learn about his culture and who he was and his background and whatnot and understanding his gods. And I think it's interesting because when he comes back, he's able to understand both groups very intimately. He's able to know what kind of phrases and what kind of words and what kind of ways to treat the Pharaoh. And he also knows how to best represent his people, the Jews. And to have that duality, I think, was absolutely necessary. If it had been just some Jew coming out of the you know, desert to say, OK, I'm coming to get my people, he wouldn't have a, an understanding of what it would take to address the Pharaoh and address the Egyptians. It, it was a I think that that was an interesting part of this, that the Lord saw to it that he would understand both of these groups and these cultures very, very well. So I may be wrong and maybe looking into this way more than I should, but I, I liken it very much to to the Egyptians. Moses was a Hebrew. Right. To to the um, what is it called? Uh, his father-in-law, where he runs away to to the Midianites. They introduce him when he helps them, and, and water draws water for them. They introduce him as an Egyptian to them, you know. So to one group, he's kind of uh, a Hebrew, but to his people, he's kind of an Egyptian. So he's kind of like you're saying, stuck in the middle of these two civilizations. But then I look back to Joseph of Egypt. When he goes to meet Pharaoh, he shaves himself. He adorns himself in the custom of the Egyptians. And you know what? They develop a friendship, and it even says in Scripture, the Pharaoh loved Joseph so much that he said, bring your people. Let us be one. You know, bring it all. And then even when he he died, you know, all of these things, like, it, it almost feels like this was an example where two cultures were meant to come and be one, you know. But I can also see how Joseph having such a status could have upset some of the Egyptians. You're looking for ways why this people are different, you know, because now they've been together. I think it's 400 years yeah. that the Hebrews have been with the Egyptians. And from that time, the Hebrews or the beginning of the story, we saw Joseph as being almost like Pharaoh, you know, in power and authority and respect. And now his descendants have gone all the way to being thought of as slaves and treated as slaves. So something went wrong. Something changed. And I would leave it to agency. People get prideful. They are not okay with someone who looks different than you. You know, all of these things that we suffer in our current culture, it's probably very similar back then, right? And um, I don't know. I, I just thought that was interesting because it's not this you know, the, this isn't that weird of a story. <laughs> like when we get into the plagues and all that stuff, yeah, that's really abnormal. But the fact that you can, you started out as great friends and it was, you were led to go to Egypt as a people and be preserved there. How did you end up becoming in bondage? You know, um, in in the Book of Mormon, there's a lot of stories about getting into bondage, and almost none of it was designed by the Lord to put people in bondage. 
it was decisions from agencies. Yeah. And a lot of times it was distancing themselves from the Lord and saying, you know, oh, we in that pride cycle of saying, well, we've got it all figured out and look how abundant we have things and look how nice our things are. And we're actually doing pretty well. We're pretty great people. And then after that comes the fall. And oftentimes that fall in the Book of Mormon was that they would become subject to someone else. And maybe that's what happened here with the Hebrews. It was that they uh, had an advantageous position. I mean, the Pharaoh welcomed Joseph's family. Come live in this land. Come be here. You know, and this is a favorable area to grow your flocks and whatnot. And flash forward to Moses's time, and it's a completely different scenario. Now they're subjugated. Now they're being used as slave labor and really a heavy burden on them. I, I don't know. I think that in that gap that we don't have knowledge about, there must have been something happening similar to what happened in the Book of Mormon, where people started to distance themselves from being obedient, and then they fell, they fell subject to another group. It's interesting because when I try to apply this, it's, it's oftentimes, <laughs> I mean, none of us are Moses, right? But at the same time, when you try to apply this to ourselves, you can tell from the very beginning, from the infancy of Moses, that there was a plan for him. That the fact that he was saved, which, by the way, um, there's an interesting quote here about his little basket that he was in. Um, this is from N's book, Exodus, and it says, In all of the Old Testament, this Hebrew word, teba, or ark, is found only here and in the flood story. Both Noah and Moses are specifically selected to forego a tragic watery fate. Both are placed on an ark, treated with bitumen, and are carried to safety on the very body of water that brings destruction to others. And both are the vehicles through whom God creates a new people for his own purposes. Furthermore, Moses' safe passage through the waters of the Nile not only looks backward to the flood story, but forward to the passage through the sea in Exodus 14 for all of God's people. So you see that, you know, there's some symbolism there that, you know, this little baby is put into a floating basket thing, a little ark, you could say, and saved. And why is that symbolism used? Well, because he has a, a purpose to reestablish the people of God. From the very beginning, this baby, just growing up in this Egyptian household, he probably had no awareness of any of that. He probably wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, I got to make sure that I get on the Pharaoh's good side because when I come rescue my people someday. No, he didn't know all that. So apply it to ourselves. What experiences have we had in our lives or what things are we were we prepared for in the future? Think about, you know, where were you born? In what circumstances? Where do you find yourself now? In what ways have you been prepared to speak to a different group or to speak to a different understanding of people to lead them to God? Right. In what ways can you be instrumental in helping people refine or find for the first time the Savior? All of that matters. And like I said, none of us are a prophet Moses, but each one of us can have a positive influence, much in the same way he did. <clears throat> I also think it's interesting how <laughs> he doubts himself kind of quite a bit. In chapter 3 of Exodus, in verse 11, he says, and Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And we've heard prophets when they're being called in, in previous parts, especially, you know, even Joseph saying, here am I. Right. 
And instead, Moses is kind of like, who am I to do that? It's kind of the opposite. And uh, I have a quote here from Millet in their book, Call of Moses. Moses's response to the Lord's call is typical of the response of most humble servants of God. Both Enoch centuries before Moses and Jeremiah centuries after demonstrated great concern over their inadequacies when called to the work of the Lord. But the heavens compensate for those who will be taught and will allow the powers of the spirit to work a mighty change. Indeed, marvelous miracles are wrought by those who acknowledge their own nothingness, while at the same time acknowledging and relying upon the Lord's omnipotence. I always think of uh, the sons of Mosiah, right? When Adam or when Ammon says, I, I glory not in myself, but I glory in my God. I boast not of myself, but I glory in my God, right? The, the attitude we should have is, yeah, maybe we feel inadequate or maybe we feel like we're not up to the task. But if you first recognize that and then say, Lord, help me do it, I'm willing. Look at what's possible. All these people who felt at first like, I don't know if I can handle this. Acknowledged that and then turned to the Lord and said, you want me to do this? I'm going to need help. Right. And Moses did get tons of help throughout this entire thing, including from his brother Aaron to be his mouthpiece. But I just I, I've often felt, you know, when I've gotten callings, I'm like, I don't know if I am the right person for this. There's other people who I think would do a better job or whatever. But then I'm like, OK, well, if I'm being called to do this, then I'm definitely going to need help. And it always it always comes. Maybe this is weird. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But I look at going back to Joseph, we we just, you know, in the last lessons, we, we were so impressed by him because he did the right thing and got sent to jail. <laughs> yeah. And while he was in jail, in his jail, he kept the faith. He just kept the faith. And I look at the children of Israel almost like this time in slavery, you were sent to jail. You know, but you lost the faith. You 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 know, and we know that in the Book of Mormon, when Alma runs away with the people and they're being pursued, and then they're captured by by the Nephites and one of the the old priests of King Noah, and they put burdens on their back, that we have an example where they continue to cry unto the Lord, and He didn't deliver them immediately, but He strengthened their backs, you know, and then delivered them by just causing a sleep to fall upon them. And then the similar people, the people of Limhi, they had to actually, he didn't cause a sleep on the Lamanites. He, they had to like give up some beer and then sneak out the back door, you know. But different ways of delivering people. But when there's faith, the Lord can do even greater miracles, you know. And so this brings me to 1 Nephi chapter 17, <clears throat> where Nephi is talking to Laman and Lemuel. In verse 34, he says, do ye suppose that our fathers would have been more choice than they if they had been righteous? And he's talking about when Moses and the children of Israel, well, no, not Moses, but the children of Israel uh, in verse 32 crossed the river Jordan and they were driving the children out of the land. And and, and he, it's kind of the Canaanites when they drive the Canaanites out. And he's saying um, in verse 33, um, do you suppose that the children of this land who were in the land of promise, who were driven out by our fathers, do you suppose that they were righteous? Behold, I say unto you, nay. And then he says, do you suppose that our fathers would have been more choice than they if they had been righteous? I say unto you, nay. And then 35, behold, the Lord steemeth all flesh in one. He that is righteous is favored of God. You know, and so I, 
I like to think about that because I think the, the Egyptians were given one of the best missionaries of all time, Joseph. Yeah. And like Ammon, he subjected himself to to the will of the king. And, and, and I'm sure that he must have shared his testimony. He couldn't just, I'm just your friend and I'm going to keep all my knowledge to myself. But this is also a very to a culture that was very steeped in paganism and all of these gods, it would have been a very threatening thing to cleave unto the Lord. You know, you'd have to abandon almost your entire social structure. And so for us, when we come to the Lord, like, do we come prepared to have a spiritual renovation occur? Mm. Or do we come saying that's going to cost too much? And then we find ourselves not seeing the wonders that the Lord does in our lives as punishments and it hardens our hearts and it actually drives us further from him, you know, like it does to Pharaoh. Or do we see it like Moses and say, these things are a sign. And actually, it seems like the Lord was pretty merciful. And even like after every single one, Pharaoh was like, okay, go ahead. You can go if you stop this. And then once Moses would stop it, never mind. I, 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 <laughs> I changed my mind, you know, and so sometimes we look at what the Lord does, especially killing the, all the firstborn of the Egyptians as man, the Lord of the Old Testament, he was pretty hardcore, he was really hard and mean and stuff, and it's like, not really, you know, he was, he, there were many opportunities for them to just turn from their ways, if not to be like Joseph of Egypt and keep the commandments, but sure, you've abandoned all of that, and now you're treating your friends and your, you know, as slaves, and now you're being shown these miracles, and every single time you agree, okay, let us stop, and I'll, I'll do what the Lord says, and then you're turning from that every time, and then when I, I don't think the Lord will jump straight to, well, it's obvious He didn't jump straight to let's kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians. You know, okay. but it took that for them to realize, OK, we'll we may not join you, but we'll at least let go. Go ahead. And even after he let them go, let's pursue them. Yeah. You know, like it, it was just. I don't know. It was it was more of a sign, not of God's brutality, but of his love to give a people a chance to turn back to him and to keep the covenants that he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You know, yeah. It's interesting that you that you say it, it, there's two ways to look at those plague type miracles. One is as a plague, as Pharaoh saw it, like, oh my gosh, this is miserable, and fine, please just leave. The other way to look at it is, I think maybe we don't we don't think about it that much. Is if the Israelites were suffering as much as they were there may have been a bit of loss of faith in God. Because when when your life is absolutely miserable and everyone's around you saying, you know what, God's there for you and God loves you. And you're like, uh, where is he now? Why is he, if he loves his people so much and he's so merciful, why, do I, why does my life suck so bad? You know, <laughs> like there could have been some people that were like, what God, what are you talking about? Look at us. You know, we're the favored people. Well, why are we all slaves? And I think one of the maybe indirect converts came from these plagues. People seeing that this prophet has come and said, I'm going to take my people. And if you don't let them go, this is what's going to happen. And then a miracle happens. And they're like, whoa, 
that just happened. And it may have been a way to even, you know, revitalize some of the faith in the children of Israel who were not being directly affected by a lot of these plagues, but certainly knew about them happening to kind of see that and be like, wow, this is this is real. This is really happening. And he's coming to rescue us and he's doing it not just as a dude, but he's like a real prophet. Like back in the day when we used to have real prophets, you know, and I, I think that you kind of see. Even as they go into the wilderness, as they escape Egypt, a lot of the murmuring and a lot of the, you know, lack of direction and stuff like that. I mean, you're in the wilderness for 40 years. Of course, you're going to murmur. But. I think it's the ongoing process of these people trying to re be, be reintroduced to their God. Building on what you just said. What triggered in my mind was in Mosiah chapter 23, when King Benjamin says, But behold, I say unto them, Behold, it is not expedient that we should have a king. For thus saith the Lord, You shall not steam one flesh above another, or one man shall not think himself above another. Therefore, I say unto you, It is not expedient that you shall have a king. And I liken that to when the children of Israel are finally departing and they're able to take gold and jewels and their cattle with them. In Exodus 11, verse 3, and it says, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So there's also the people, I think, saw that Moses was holy, was a man of God. And in that, you know, but I think their political system in Pharaoh was just Pharaoh in, in that scripture comes to mind that one man can bring about much wickedness, you know, and cause a lot of bloodshed. <laughs> My favorite plague <laughs> was the lice. Um, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 16, and it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, for Aaron stretched forth his hand with the rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast, and all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, this is the one that caught me. This is the first time that the magicians, in verse 18, and the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord has said. So this is a turning point where even the magicians, which I view them as their scientists, their scholars, their men of knowledge. They could understand all of the plagues so far and they could replicate them. But at the point where they could no longer replicate them, they started to say, this must be the finger of God, you know. Which to me, I mean, it was so much like the day we live in right now, because we take great pride in being able to explain what gravity is and why the earth goes around the sun and evolution and all these things. And as soon as we understand it and can replicate it, or at least in our understanding replicate it, we discredit God. It's no big deal. It's no miracle. It's not a fancy thing. But as soon as we don't understand it, There's two outcomes. You can do what the magicians did and say, this is the finger of God. Or you can be like Pharaoh and double down again and get even more upset and harden your heart. So this is a scenario where 
when people say, if I saw a miracle, I would believe. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, you will continue to find a way to view that miracle with your current beliefs until you soften your heart, you know? And and this is what's happening. I think the, the magicians, and <laughs> I feel bad for them, because they were doing pretty good. They were doing the best they could. But up to this point, they couldn't do it anymore. And it's like, okay, uh, Pharaoh, you should listen up. And and then we jump later to the scripture I already read you where it said, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of Egypt. Man, what, Moses was viewed as a great man in the land, in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and in the sight of his people. I'm not sure how long these plagues happen. Like when we watch the movie, it seems like it happens like in a matter of two days or something, right? Um, but I wonder how how long this took, you know, in and there were people's hearts being changed, you know, for the good or like Pharaoh hardening their hearts. And so sometimes we say, well, if I were to see the sea part or I were to see this, well, if you could understand it like the magicians could, initially you would continue to believe whatever you believed. Like it's no miracle here. You know, once you can't understand it, then you have a choice. You can exercise faith or you can harden your heart and say, Nope, I still don't want to believe, which we've seen Laman and Lemuel do the exact same thing, right? Right. Well, because miracles in and of themselves don't don't convert you. And we've seen that countless times that it's not the thunder. It's not the whatever It's the still small voice. Right. That these things, it wasn't the giant pillar of fire that uh, came down and burnt the entire altar and, that converted all of the priests of Baal. It was after the fact it wasn't that that huge thing. It was what was happening in each individual person. It's kind of interesting, though, like these plagues. As as they finally work right uh, to the point where he's willing to let them go for real, then decides to chase them anyway and dies as a result. I mean, they get to the Red Sea. Moses parts the Red Sea. The people go through on dry ground and the Pharaoh and his guys chase him and end up getting swallowed up in the sea. Uh, it, it cost him his life that he was not willing to uh, ever give in. Yeah. And all of these signs, all of these, all of this evidence was never enough for him to just be like, OK, I guess this that's real because he didn't ever want to. Uh, like you said earlier, it would have been a whole paradigm shift for them to finally go like, oh, I guess the God of the Hebrews is the real God. You know, <laughs> that would have been like, wait, what? So this entire institution that we have established here is meaningless. So I don't think you ever went in this with the idea that, oh, I guess I'm going to have to ultimately accept that this is the way it is. But it, it kind of looks, you know, once again, it kind of apply it to us. It's like, how many times do things, challenges, trials prevent, present themselves in our lives? And we're like, oh, my gosh, Heavenly Father, please just help me get through this. Help me get through this. And then the mercy comes. And then we're like, OK, well, I, I guess I can probably go back to doing what I was doing. Yeah, go back to your old ways. Like, yeah. I promise, if if you help me out of this, I'll go to church every Sunday. I promise, I'll go to church. Yeah. You get out of it, and you're like, well, I mean, every other Sunday. I, I mean, it. not this Sunday, because you know. And then, yeah, and then another trial comes, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is really going to do me in. Uh, Father, please help me get through this, right? And then the same, it's the same thing. And how many times do we harden our hearts too? Or even we're like, every time that I feel like I'm doing well, a trial comes. This is this is not God must not care. 
God must not love me if he continues to put this stuff in my way. You know, hardening your heart against God. It's a, they're all, you know, whether, whether these things happened exactly as they appear in this text or not, uh, the message that we can get from them is the same. Um, and that is that faith is what made those people get saved. Yeah. Faith that Moses had, faith that the Israelites had. Even ultimately, Pharaoh recognizing that something is beyond my control and it's too much for us to handle. Even he had a little glimpse of believing in the God of the Hebrews before letting them go. So that, that to me, is basically the underlying message of this entire story is faith and grabbing onto that with everything you've got. I find it interesting that I, I wonder, well, the Passover is a very symbolic uh, religious event for Judeo-Christianity yeah. and, for, and for the Jews, right? You know, it's, um, and, and it was supposed to be symbolic of how the Savior and his atonement, him being the unspotted lamb, he being the firstborn, would die and save all of us out of our bondage, you know, would die and save all of us. But to the Egyptians, you know, the pa the Passover, the destroying angel comes through, leaves those that have done the offering and, and mark their doors, you know, right? But to the Egyptians, it's a terrible thing. They lose their firstborns. Into a society that is so steeped in their hierarchy and their history, that must have been like not just that must have been a very big blow aside from losing your child losing your firstborn right and then you lose your pharaoh too and i i you know this is kind of my speculation but i tend to think that that may be the reason why we don't hear about the hebrews very much in in the egyptian lore because whomever came into power would always be questioned as illegitimate not the rightful ruler and you would then have the temptation that many rulers do change the history. Right. So this never happened. We always were. And, you know, going back to the Book of Mormon, where where I look at in First Nephi, chapter 17, uh, verse 36 through 42. I won't read it all. I just read some sections. But he, this is after Nephi has told them, hey, do you think you're so special because you're children of Israel? He just wants you to keep the commandments. That's what makes you special. He didn't cause our fathers to drive away those people because they were righteous and we were just more special than they were wicked. And so he says, this helped me a lot to understand the Old Testament because it's always like Israel is about to get into wars continuously. You know, and be scattered and be gathered and scattered and gathered over and over again. Right. But he says in verse 36, behold, the Lord hath created the earth that it should be inhabited. And he hath created his children that they should possess it. And he raises up a righteous nation and destroyeth the nations of the wicked. And he leadeth away the righteous into precious lands, and the wicked he destroyeth, and curseth the land unto them for their sakes. And I think this is talking about people, but I think it applies to individuals. He will lead you to righteous lands. He will lead you into better habits, into a better life. But if not, but if you choose not to heed his words, 
you're left to these destructions or these bad times, you know, and it's not always the destruction of our physical body. It's the destruction of our potential or our ability to understand or even the, the desire to continue to pursue good improvement and growth. You know, we can abandon those things. And that's the danger of sins and bad habits and not putting the Lord first is he will continue to prune us and help us overcome our trials. He won't get rid of them. He will just help us to use them to strengthen us. And so, and we see that in verse 40, 41 and 42, where he says, and he loveth those who will have him to be their God. Behold, he loved our fathers and he covenanted with them, yea, even Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he remembered the covenants which he made, wherefore he did bring them out of the land of Egypt. And he did straighten them in the wilderness with his rod, for they hardened their hearts, even as ye have. And the Lord straightened them because of their iniquity. He sent fiery serpents upon them. And after they were bitten, he prepared a way that they may be healed. And the labor which they had to perform was to look. And because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. And they did harden their hearts from that time to time. And they did revile against Moses and also against God. Nevertheless, ye know that ye were led forth by his matchless power into the land of promise. And I like that because now we see from Nephi many years later what they understood the teaching of these lessons to them was. And the takeaway was God delivered us, delivered our fathers. And not because they were special, you know, it's because they chose to follow the commandments. And as soon as they turned away, he tried to remind them. And he says he straightened them. He corrected them. He gave them reminders of like, you don't want to go back there. You don't want to go back to how you used to do things. And those that would listen, like, I don't want to quote the magicians here again, but would notice this must be the finger of God. And those that weren't prepared hardened their hearts like Pharaoh and said, this, this is not for me. This is a bunch of, you know, macaroni. You know, I'm not going to do this. Right. And that is the exact same battle we have today in our lives. You know, I think about how many times even after after witnessing all those plagues, all those miracles, after crossing the Red Sea and literally walking on dry ground where there was an ocean, right? They, they get to the other side and they still have these moments where they start to question things and start to question Moses and start to want to rebel against things. And the Lord continues to show mercy. They start complaining about how there's no water. There's no, we don't have any water. Okay, hit this rock and water will come out, you know? done uh we don't have any food we haven't eaten in a long time where are we going to get food here every morning i'm going to drop food on your doorstep i'm going to give you manna every day eat this and you'll be fine oh we're tired of eating manna manna is so bland and blah, 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 blah. okay fine here's some quail <laughs> like how many times is the lord like well it's it's funny because the <laughs> other part was they wouldn't they were told not to keep the manna overnight right which I think was very symbolic to the Lord trying to almost on training will say, when are you going to trust me? That it doesn't appear like there will be more food, but I will give you food, you know. And it's almost like it doesn't appear like you can get out of Egypt. I'll get you out of Egypt. It doesn't look like this ocean. 
the, like there's a path, I'll make a path. It doesn't look like there's water, I'll give you water. Oh, there's water this time, but it's bitter. I'll cut this tree and it falls and it'll fix whatever the bitterness was, right? Like, it's just like, and it seems like such an oxymoron to us, but do we look at our lives and realize he's done the same thing with us? You know, how many times have we had, it doesn't appear like there's a clear path, but I, the right thing is this. But I don't see how that's going to get me to, like, that's going to give me my wants, my needs, or fulfill my desires. It doesn't feel like these commandments will do that. Well, have some faith and do it. You know, this might be a bad attitude to have. But when you try something new, I always think, what's it going to hurt? Especially if it's the Lord asking you to try something new. You can, (laughs) this sounds bad, you can always go back, you know. (laughs) But here's the thing. Once you know, you better not go back. Like the Lord doesn't give us bad things. It's just our sight. We can only see our immediate need. And just like the children of Israel, I'm really worried about my stomach. I'm hungry or I'm really worried about this. or I'm really, And it's like the Lord will take care of you, you know. And sometimes our immediate needs is like it, it might be emotional. I, I don't feel loved or I have lack of self-confidence. Or I don't have a good structural support unit around me. I don't have a good job and, you know, like this and that. And it's like the children of Israel, those things didn't come in like one package. No. You know, they came as, okay, I need you to move from here to there. And when you get there, trust me, it'll be better. And as the children of Israel say, but we don't want to move. That seems hard. You know, I don't see how I'm looking over there and it looks just the same as here. So why not stay here? This is comfortable. It's the same thing Laman and Lemuel did. You know, like why? Why? We can't imagine uh, the promised land. And the Lord is saying, just just get there and trust me. And that's sometimes how we tackle some of these problems. Sometimes it's like, just clean up your resume. Figure out how to make a good one or go volunteer for something or gain a new experience. Find your hobby. Go on a walk. Do the, but I don't see how that's going to make me feel better. But just do it. And then when you get there, trust in the Lord. And and, and, it, and that, that same pattern, I feel, is in our lives. We should, like the children of Israel, hopefully not take so long, but uh, no, take the story to tell us the Lord expects us to move. To move from here to there through the commandments. And even though initially we don't see it, just do it. The worst thing that will happen is nothing <laughs> nothing it'll actually be better for us you know like even if it's now i have two points of data now i have a wider perspective just move just go you know i don't know i can't explain what i'm trying to say but no it, it makes sense and i think that you know when i when i look at i don't know how many people we're talking about here when we talk about the children of israel walking through the wilderness i don't know if we're talking about 10,000 people or a million you know i don't know Um, I'm sure someone has a better idea, but sometimes we're asked to be Moses where we're given a monumental task that we don't feel up to and we have to rely on faith and understanding and really kind of like you were saying, just saying, I have a willingness to move forward. I don't know how. Help me. The willingness is there. Now, take that willingness and do make me, you know, help me make stuff happen. But sometimes we're not asked to be Moses. Sometimes someone else is asked to be Moses around us. 
And I think in those times, we need to become the Aaron or the Miriam. Where it's like, all right, I'm not the one in charge of this. And maybe I look at this guy and I think, I don't think this guy has what it takes to do this. But if you're a, an Aaron or a Miriam, you say, what can I do to bolster this person up? What can I do to help? Right? Instead of just being like, oh, I'm tired of manna. You know, and be like, hey, Moses, what, what, where do you need me? What can I do to be beneficial to this group, to this organization, right? We off, I mean, Aaron ended up calling, being called to be his mouthpiece. He was his spokesman. Um, Moses struggled with public speaking, which is kind of, it always makes me laugh when they talk about how these people were, you know, not good at speaking. I'm like, well, gosh, it seems like they've already done quite a bit and they've done okay. But for whatever reason, he didn't, didn't feel comfortable doing that. And Aaron did. And so he became his spokesman. And Miriam, um, there's even a part, I think it's in in chapter 15, chapter 15, uh, uh, verse 20. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he hath thrown in, into the sea. She led the women in worshiping God. She said, all right, I'm going to take some initiative here and I'm going to take the women and we're going to I'm going to be a leader. Uh, this is Aaron's sister, right? Moses's sister. And I don't know. I just see it as even if you're not the one who's being asked to do the, the main task, don't be a burden. Don't be someone who's going to be making it more difficult for that person. Yeah. Find a way to be supportive and, and, and push that person and lift them up when they need to have their hands up, right? Which I think that comes later in the story. But being able to be a positive influence isn't just for the people in charge. Those of us who have roles to play as well can be hugely beneficial for them and help them to succeed. You know, there there is um, our modern day Moses, President Nelson, right? Our prophet, and we have our bishops, our state presidents, you know, our leaders. They give us advice on different stages, right? And our prophet has told us all to focus on spiritual momentum, how to how to increase our spiritual momentum, right? And then how to forgive, to seek to forgive others, and to be peacemakers, not to avoid conflict. And look at the world we live in. You know, we're not wandering through deserts, or maybe some are, right? There are some people. And saints and innocent people and, and non-members, everybody. There are places in the world that are at war, that are going through terrible things, that literally need to move to a promised land, to a new location, to safety, right? There's also the majority of us that are not dealing with immediate physical danger, that are more dealing with spiritual and emotional dangers, you know? And what our prophet has told us is, you know, increase your spiritual momentum. And it's like that's not going to happen by us doing nothing and waiting for something to happen. It's going to happen by us looking within ourselves, using the power of prayer and revelation and the gift of the Holy Ghost to realize what's something I could do that can give me a little momentum. You know, it could be simple things. It could be big things. It could, you know, but to everyone, you know, and it's our opportunity 
it let's not let the simpleness of what the prophet is asking us keep us from receiving the healing and the miracle behind it. You know, we could look at it, oh, spiritual momentum, like, you know, sure, I'll just keep doing whatever I'm doing. You know, that's the equivalent of not looking like the children of Israel. Right. And just because we say it didn't come in a thundering storm. It wasn't the prophet calling down fire and having the fire written out, telling us what to do. It was him simply telling us, increase your spiritual momentum, look for a way to forgive someone, you know, especially by Easter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, that's not, when when I, you read that scripture, it says because of the simpleness of the way. And, and sometimes we want some complicated, some great task. And it's like, here we are. We just have our moment. We've read these scriptures. We looked at their their history. And with our 2020 hindsight, we can say, oh, they should have done all this. But it's like our prophet just asked us to do something. What are we doing about it? I think one of the lessons that we learned from, from the manna is that that spiritual momentum is not just a one-time big gesture. Um, that it comes, it has to come every day. You have to do something every day to nourish yourself spiritually. Doesn't matter what it is. I mean, manna was not a. They didn't wake up every day to you know four course meal. They woke up to something that would sustain them. And I think that we have to think about what are we doing in our lives that can be our spiritual manna to propel us through one more day, and to keep that momentum moving forward. And that yeah, there are going to be times when. If you try to uh, skip it for a while and store up and hope that that spirituality is going to last you, it may not, right? That you have to continually feed your spirit that that nourishment, whether it's scripture study or prayer or just meditation, whatever it may be. In order to keep that momentum going, there has to be a constant reminder, a constant push, not just a one-time thing, you know. We can say, oh, I... You know, I, I went to church on Easter and I felt really fulfilled and that charged my battery for a good long while. Well, that's fine. But momentum, it, it, it slows down over time. No matter how hard you push that ball, it's only going to roll for so long before it stops. And so you got to keep pushing it. I think that's one thing that I learned from from that manna story. Become an engaged learner. Immerse yourself in the scriptures to understand better Christ's mission and ministry. Know the doctrine of Christ so that you understand its power for your life. Internalize the truth that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to you. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself, if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study, which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost, it will help you know the mind and will of the Lord to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come follow me.